So what you said about like having so much curiosity kind of triggered something in my mind, a little personal, but I'll, I'll tell it. I love sort of his ideology with that. I think that I would, I strive for that. And um, I can remember like growing up, just like everyone always being like, you're so curious, you're such a curious kid and all this stuff. My parents had this ongoing thing every, every night before bed, I would get to ask them two or three questions just any question in the world. And I would continually ask like how things worked, how this happened, how, you know, how does a toilet work? How does a, like an airplane stay in the air? Like all this stuff. And it's cool to think that like just carrying that into adulthood, like you should be like unabashedly seeking out this kind of stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. If you're interested, if you're even slightly interested in understanding how something works, like go figure out how it works. It's awesome. Welcome to episode 202 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm Luke. And I'm James. And this week we discuss the middle third of Frank Herbert's 1965 novel, Dune. Well, here we are in person. Uh, I am in Florida right now, and we're recording sitting right next to each other, which is very odd. One microphone. One microphone. Just two boys huddled next to a microphone. Yes. As God intended. <laughs> that's, what the, that's what the podcast has always been, yeah. As prophecy foretold. <laughs> yes. Um, it's very odd. Um, so if the energy is a little different, if the sound's a little different, that's probably to blame. Um, but we are going to be discussing the middle third of this novel. And uh, this last weekend, I was down here uh, going to my younger brother Ben's bachelor party where we were. Uh, down in Tampa, going to some different things and trying to remain as safe as possible, but still having a good time doing some outdoor stuff. Went to an NFL game, went to a on a pedal cab, stuff like that. Um, and then just stealing away moments to read in between, which was a little tricky, especially when it's such a dense project like Dune is. Um, I'm curious, James, what your experience was reading this middle chunk here. Yeah. I mean, I think you sandbagged a little bit when I when I first started talking to you about how we needed to read this week. Uh-huh. You were like, this is, I think, the shortest bit. It's not the shortest bit. I didn't mean short. <laughs> it's not the shortest bit. Also, I was apparently wrong. <laughs> and um, But overall, I mean, like, I really enjoyed being back. I did start reading, like, just a tiny amount after our recording last week. And I was like, because I wanted to get back into it right away. Mm-hmm. Some big revelations right as we ended the recording, right as we ended our reading last week. So... Definitely wanted to get into that. And then this time, you know, there's a lot of building that's going on and you can see some of the characters sort of where they might end up nearing the end of the story. But honestly, it took me on a trip still because it was unexpected in ways like I expected to get the Fremen stuff, but some of the other stuff that we got surprised me. Yeah. I mean, we we mostly deal a lot with the Fremen, I feel like in this chunk, right? Like a lot of Paul meeting with the Fremen and Jessica and starting to learn a little bit about their actual culture. Um, we get a little bit of stuff with the Baron's, um, what's it, his son? What's it, Fre- Freyd. His, like, nephew, yeah. Nephew, that's who he is, yeah. Fade Rotha. Fade, Fade Rotha. Some of these names, man, yes. I'm going to butcher. Like, I, I've heard them, I've read them, and then when it comes time to say them, 
Ooh boy. Definitely. Um, and I know there are people out there who read this book like 20 times and have it all, you know, frontwards and backwards memorized. So I apologize as you're screaming at your podcast player. Um, <laughs> this is our first time through this. So they're they're very unfamiliar to us. But I do want to shout out like we, we mentioned last week that it said that this is sort of the Lord of the Rings of science fiction. And I thought that was kind of a throwaway line. Like Lord of the Rings is the most popular, well-known fantasy historically right like it's mm-hmm. it's the one that that has been around a long time it's kind of the grandfather of of fantasy in many ways um and to liken this to that i was like oh, okay so they're just reaching for the thing that everybody knows um but i think that it goes farther because the richness of the background like the stuff that's off the page and just hinted at and implied and the world building um, and we get just tastes of like the culture and the it's like thousands and thousands of years of this galactic empire. And so much of it isn't explained. It's just given us little breadcrumbs. And that's the kind of stuff that Tolkien does so much of. Right. And if you want to be a super nerd about it and get into all that stuff, there's a lot there. And so I can imagine there's probably a lot of people who love to get into all those details and know the inner workings of all these different houses and different factions within this empire um whereas as as to a new reader it's doled out in small chunks and i like that it's not completely overwhelming even if at times it can come close to that i was gonna say with with the amount of time that we had to read this section it did feel overwhelming sometimes yeah Uh, and with characters and sort of some glancing looks at backstories and the especially the bene gesserit stuff is like uh it feels so ancient and then their powers are so like it's it seems like every couple chapters we get more abilities that they have and um it it seems like it's clearly just magic but it's also like (laughs) a religion and then some of the time some of the stuff that they're doing is a little false so it's not clear it's not all powerful as they would have you believe like even paul like i mentioned at the end of last episode how he's going to be this just like all-powerful character going forward and it's going to be tough to write a character that knows everything and is just unstoppable. And I think Herbert does a good job of like making him struggle and not in control of his powers fully through this, through these parts. And uh, you can kind of see him start to get more of that. But the big monkey wrench is when he ingests spice at any point, because then he starts to like sort of lose his grip, but then become like increasingly more powerful. So I don't know. Some some of that stuff kind of threw me for a loop too. Yeah, it's interesting, right? He has to walk the line of of having a character who is clearly fitting into this chosen one archetype uh, that we see so often in fantasy and science fiction, and uh, but find a way to make him interesting. And I like that he pushes back on his role a little bit. Like mm. he is afraid of these visions of warfare. Well, he's seen he's seen seemingly like one outcome, and I I love the part where it's talked about how. Every decision that he makes, he can sort of see many different ramifications all along his his journey so far. And it's crazy to think that like he's constantly just trying to find the one outcome. It reminds me of like Endgame where they're like, there's one outcome where we succeed. He's like, there's one <laughs> outcome of Paul's life where he goes through everything on Arrakis and, and finds a way to not have like a jihad, right? Yeah, jihad. Yeah, that's the thing he's worried about, right? This long, bloody jihad that he keeps predicting and he knows that he is going to be a key figure in. Um, but he also starts to suspect his mother, Jessica, is going to be sort of primary in causing this jihad to happen. 
And he doesn't want to necessarily have this big bloody war be something that he's going to spear front. Um, and I like that he is resistant to that, although I suspect it won't matter ultimately. And he's going to he's yeah. going to do it. Um, but, you know, I'm fascinated to see how, how he handles that going forward. Like, I like the idea of, of a leader who maybe is a reluctant le- uh, warrior, but who has peace as his ultimate goal. Um, that makes me like him a little more than if he was like purely out for vengeance. Yeah, I mean, I feel like Campbell's story circle has like a reluctant hero every time, right? Isn't that that's true? Yeah, that? the call, the call to action, and then you uh, resist the call. Right. right, right, right. So I think that's also mirrored in the duel that we see happen, where Paul fights in a way in which he doesn't really want to kill the guy. Um, which I know we'll get to this, but like. That reluctance to end the life, I think, mimics that reluctance to want to be this war hero. Um, and I think that is smart in, like, again, making Paul a more likable character in our eyes. Because we do know that there's a sort of artifice to this position. Because the Bene Gesserit have planted these seeds throughout the galaxy. Um, f- basically, just as, like, little safe havens for themselves if they happen to get stranded somewhere. And yet the Fremen have built this whole belief structure around it. So it's hard to like not look at that and, and like be cynical about it. Um, yeah. I, one thing I did read that was interesting. I, uh, I I looked into Herbert a little bit more, watched some interviews, read about him. And his second wife, Beverly, um, who he met in a creative writing course, was his first reader and a big supporter of his and helped a lot with the characterization, and I, and I read especially of his female characters. And the character of Jessica is largely based off of her. Wow. Um, so a lot of that, a lot of what Jessica does, I think, is is sort of inspired by her. And I really like Jessica as a character, so I find that fascinating. Um, and then her Herbert's parents, one his father, I believe it was, was agnostic, but his mother was Catholic. Um, and specifically, uh, he was raised and he learned from these Jesuits, um, these women who were Jesuits. And apparently the Bene Gesserit is kind of wow, largely inspired by the by the Jesuits wow. faith. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. Yeah, I didn't either. So I thought that was kind of a cool little note. So he uses a lot of his own life and a lot of his own experiences um, to to inform it. And speaking of learning about him as a as a person, I saw some interviews where he was talking about how we needed to switch away from fossil fuels into renewable energy. And this was, you know, 60, in the 80s, right? 80s oh, okay. 70s, yeah. you know, like a long time ago. He's already talking about renewable energy. Um, he had this thing where he lived on a like an experimental home that was like run by um, like a, a wind turbine and solar panels and all this different stuff. He like farmed his own food and like. All, he was like trying to be super fully self-sustaining and wow. um so he was super into that stuff early on um very critical of the government didn't think that people should trust their governments which i thought was interesting um yeah. he grew up in the time or he was he was talking about it in the time of richard nixon mm-hmm. and i think he was like he liked that it opened people's eyes to being skeptical of their leaders and he was very wary of people getting behind their leaders and sort of throwing in with them and believing them uh, whole cloth and because of that he was very skeptical of heroic figures and i thought that was interesting because he's he's setting up paul to be this chosen one hero archetype yeah archetype but he's questioning it right and mm-hmm. i think he's saying like 
should people fall in line behind somebody like this and believe in them? And I think when it's built on this foundation that's kind of false, um, it, it, it makes this role stand out a little from what we've seen elsewhere. Yeah, I do expect there to be a twist along the way. Of course, some of these prophecies are going to come true and he's going to be this chosen one to lead them to hopefully a better Arrakis uh, for everyone. But I think there's definitely going to be some turmoil along the way when they they realize that something's going to come up. And I think it has to do with Jessica because she's clearly sort of like starting to uh, twist against him just slightly. Some of the things that are going on, some of the things he wants to do. Um, and I think that we're going to see some sort of reckoning from the fact that the Benny Gesserit are s- just selling lies to people in right. the hopes that something comes true eventually. Or even just, not even that it'll come true, that it'll just be a, a falsehood that people like build their lives around and stuff. That's an interesting idea. I do wonder if we're going to see the Fremen realize that it was sort of based on a lie. Yeah. Or if they're going to be true believers well if he's a skeptical figure if if uh, herbert himself is skeptical i could see him sort of baking that into this story because these these people are you know telling lies and yeah not believing a whole cloth like you said in their in their religion or or, or will paul is that going to be manifested in paul's own inner struggle yeah as he realizes what he's doing from like like where his power actually comes from and maybe he'll feel conflicted about his decisions and how it's going to affect people's lives and, and whether or not they should be believing in him as this messianic figure, which it's looking like he's going to become. Yeah. We're, we're definitely leaning that direction. Um, so you brought up Herbert. I wanted to yeah. mention something. We talked last week about his research in the dunes and yeah. like the importance that he was finding in um, you know conserving them, basically. And I the scene that we'll, we'll get to, obviously, the plot here in a second, but the scene when uh jessica and paul are you know traveling through the dunes and there's the section where the, she sort of falls in and he's losing the pack the way that the the sort of sliding effect of the of the sand in the dune is is described it's like so specific that like he has he's so well he's so acclimated with like how the sand moves and stuff and i could just visualize everything he was writing in that scene and the way that they sort of had to let it cave in on itself almost for her to be able to pull herself out otherwise she was just going to be smothered in it yeah and then they were able to get the the bag out out because of that and again seeing paul sort of have this like precog ability almost where he's like seeing some things beforehand but not every detail he needs so things are still kind of up in the air I mean, I'm sure there are canonical reasons for that, but I did have a note where I was like, it feels like he can see the future, except for when it's important for the plot that he not see the future. I, yeah, I agree. I felt <laughs> there are times where he's a little bit blocked and he's like, oh, I can't see the outcome What's of this. What's going on here? Yeah. And it's like, there, yeah. There's actually like, a name for it, too. That I forget what it's called, but there's like, he, he even named it and was like, when I can't see the future, it's like. I can't remember. It, yeah. So. That part you're talking about, uh, that reminds me of a little anecdote. I mentioned last week that I was hanging out with Remy Nakamura, and he told me that, are you familiar with the Fat Boy Slim song where Christopher Walken is doing that wild dance in the music video? Yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, I don't know the name of the song off the top of my head, but I can yeah. visual, I can see it in my mind's yeah. eye. Yeah. I can't remember the name of the song either yeah. off the top of my head. I should have looked it up, but um, one of the lines in that song is uh like if you walk without the ribbon rhythm you won't attract the worm wow. and it's a reference to this book because awesome. you remember them talking about how yeah. they have to walk like Out step, of sync. pause step step slide yeah. whatever and it's apparently so cool. that's a specific lyric in that song referencing this i'm gonna have to go listen to that that's yeah, awesome. yeah 
So check that out. Uh, speaking of other uh, references, uh, we were talking about this uh, just randomly this this last week, and I out of the blue we were talking about the Mintats, and I was like, I think there's a, a drug in the Fallout franchise you take called Mintats that makes your mind like really powerful. I think it gives you like a plus two intelligence or something. And I was like, is that a reference to this book? Or is it both? Are they both referencing something else? And we we looked it up, and sure enough, it's a reference to Dune. So it's just fun when you can make start making these connections in something in like media that you've already been steeped in, and just didn't know that that was what that was. Yeah. You know, like all this time I've been thinking about Mintats. So when I read Mintat in the book, I kind of had this like intelligence idea already because right. well, it has the that like, that part of the mental, word as well. Man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but sense. I wonder if stim packs, stim packs are from Fallout, right? I wonder if stim packs are like <laughs> I don't know what else, that's yeah. from. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, anyway, cool stuff. We I do have some summary to read. Um, it's I, I ended up having to find a slightly different summary than I was using last week because it was very, very brief on this whole middle book. So I found one that's a little more expansive just so we can actually talk a little bit more about what actually happens. Um, and it's going to be divided into three paragraphs. So here we go. Um, so Idaho def dies defending Jessica and Paul, and their ally, Liet Kynes, is taken prisoner during their escape. Now, this is kind of going a little bit back, I think, into the previous section, but I think I figure that's okay. So Halleck, believing them dead, joins up with a smuggling outfit. Jessica and Paul are on their own without supplies in the harsh Arrakis desert. During their escape, Paul inhales a quantity of spice, which enhances his genetics and training to afford him some abilities of foresight with, pot with potential futures laid out before him. After arduous travel through the desert in which they survive a sandstorm, an avalanche, and a giant sandworm, Paul and Jessica find a Fremen siege, led by Stilgar. The Fremen are a hardy and honorable people who live in communities across the Arrakis deserts that are governed by strict moral, political, and religious codes. Paul proves himself to the Fremen by fighting in single combat, while Jessica proves herself a powerful religious figure who is soon adopted as the Siege's reverend mother. Jessica, who is pregnant with Leto's daughter, Alia Atreides, ingests the water of life in a, in a ritual to become the reverend mother. This change affects Jessica and her unborn child by giving them both collective ancestral memories of the Fremen reverend mothers. I guess we don't know that about the daughter I yet. I mean, I was pretty certain. It but was it seemed clear. likely, right? Because she, she mentions like, she or the, the, they mentioned like, oh, you should have told us you were pregnant because that's going to do something to the child. Luckily, it's a woman. And yeah, Jessica yeah. kept thinking like during that whole process about how it was like changing her unborn child and undeveloped yeah. and it, it was just very very interesting stuff um let's jump back up to the top though yeah uh so duncan idaho i did not expect to die yeah this quickly yeah it's uh tragic right like he's kind of yeah. a cool figure it's um, gonna be it's gonna be a big hit for sure like and remind I, me who's playing him in the movie that was uh jason momoa oh it's jason momoa oh yeah. people are gonna be devastated yeah yeah so he sorry uh, for the spoiler i guess <laughs> i mean like yeah you're here for the you're already in the spoiler you're already in the spoiler anyway. category you're in the middle of the book yeah so so yeah to see him go down um and he was like it seemed like he was sort of the the top of the three you know i think they the three who were sort of the right hands of duke leto his 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 aides they he seemed like sort of obviously more combat oriented whereas some of the other ones were more advisors in different ways but he seemed like one of the one of the top people within his within his government and so 
to see him go down, obviously it was for a good cause to continue to, to allow Paul to continue his journey, but uh, just so quick and so sudden, and he's already yeah. dealing with the death of his father. Then he has one of his closest like aides who's helped him like develop his skills over time go. And, and then they're like, they have to escape and this kinds is, has a whole thing that we'll, we'll get to, but yeah. Uh, so they're at kinds facility when all this happens and then they have to basically flee into the desert and uh, everyone kind of thinks that they're dead. Right. Cause they're out there just in a storm in a sandstorm. Yeah. And uh, it's a, it's a rough spot because they, they also, I think are having to kind of adapt to the fact that they haven't used these still suits very well, very much. Right. And, and dealing with that and i love the description of like their lips and what it does to your nose over time and like how it's just like uncomfortable and of course because of course it would be if you're not used to it right and uh that whole journey through the through the desert is pretty harrowing well in the the descriptions of the desert is pretty beautiful you know like i, I love the shifting sands the moonlight the just the environment is really evoked um it makes it transports you to dune which i think is like that's one of the things we all want when we read science fiction, right? Like, we want to feel like we're somewhere new and exciting. Um, and I definitely get that vibe from Dune. So I can see why people fall in love with that, right? Um, and then when they're out in the desert, which is also, like, it's so cool to take such a giant story in scope and shrink it down to just Jessica and Paul together right. trying to survive on the desert. Yeah. And, I like, I love it when George R. R. Martin did that with um, certain characters in his books, too. Like, you just pair them off, and you have them together on the road. Right. And you get to, like... John and Tyrion. Yeah, you, yeah. Get, you get to, like experience the world from like a smaller scope even though big things are happening mm -hmm. um so i mean i'm sure he's inspired we've talked about from this book um because clearly he was doing this long before but it, it works really well um and i like the whenever the worms show up i'm always like you know oh, paying it's attention so, it's yeah like, it's, it's very exciting. So exciting and then they're they're you know they see one that's like way bigger than any of the other ones because they're in the deep desert and they're like oh they're even crazy big like crazy like way bigger out here um and I, I do, it's interesting that like Paul has, keeps getting this thought of like, I shouldn't be afraid of them. I should respect them. Um, maybe the be a little bit too. wary of them. I can see, yeah, oh yeah, you can the smell the cinnamon, cinnamon yeah. which is also cool because like that's, that's something we can all do. So like, if you wanted to have a dune party, just like throw cinnamon on everything, yeah. <laughs> just throw it in the fucking air, <laughs> right. cinnamon candles burning. Yeah. Uh, that would be awesome. Um, well, yeah, so you, you, uh. These these worms, he's like, well, I don't know if we should really fear them. But, it, I mean, obviously they're scary and they have to use these thumpers to get them to draw them away, and they, which create this rhythmic thumping sound to go against the kind of... It's described that the, the non-rhythmic movement is supposed to be make you sound like a thing of the desert because, like, the desert doesn't move with rhythm. Right. Um, which, yeah, again, I'm not sure that that's true, but it's interesting, right? It's cool. I'll, I'll take it, yeah. yeah. I like the thumper, the the idea of it, too. Like, it's a cool invention. And then we get... So they kind of have set one up. I am thinking about Tremors, man. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> Which I'm sure is inspired by Dune, Probably, right? Like, yeah. You know, things in the, in the dirt. Yeah, things in the yeah, sand. I bet it up. was, yeah. Uh, so as they're traveling, too, they get to this point where there's a thumper that they've set, but they're getting too far away from it, basically. And then a worm kind of comes after them, sort of, or mm -hmm. is seemingly going to. And then they, that's when they start to hear another one and they head towards it and come to find out it was the Fremen. Yeah. And they're like basically summoning, they can like, they can like call the, the, the worms to them with using, using different sounds. Well, in the, in the, yeah. yeah, we find out that they, they call them makers, right? Yeah. Um, and essentially they, as, as predicted, it seems like they're very important to the creation of the spice. Yeah. And there's even little makers. They talk about little makers. So you can, there's a bunch of little worms down underneath the mm -hmm. soil, like. 
um, producing spice and also maybe other things. I don't know. So Unclear. I kind of got the implication that the we'll get to the kind stuff, but like what happens to him and that sort of boil over that happens. Yeah, they're they're also they're I think they're intertwined with that sort of thing because I think it's like mm-hmm. a buildup of carbon dioxide, gases or something. and yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah, that that is going to be um, essential to trans- terraforming essentially the planet. Right. Yeah, they know this is important. So the the worms are a key creature in this sort of ecology of this planet. Uh, all really fascinating stuff, and I, and, I, and I love that it all plays into this ecology stuff I was reading about it's and so listening cool, yeah. to with with Herbert. Like he's really into this stuff. Um, so this all leads to them joining up with the Fremen, and I love the new character of Stilgar that we meet. Yeah, he's immediately so likable. Like so, he, he gets he gets like taken by Jessica, and she's got like a knife to his throat or something. The Gondrabar, right? She or she or she like says he she sort of references the Gondrabar, and he's familiar. Yeah, yeah. But I, when she has like the knife or whatever it is like to him, he keeps like talking, and I love the way Herbert writes that section because he doesn't say, and then she like applied more pressure to him, and then he's like ah. Instead, he just does the voice stuff. Like, mm-hmm. he has him talking, and then he's like, oh, well, no, no need to do that, woman, or whatever. Like, he says stuff like that. And, like, you can just imagine that she's kind of jabbing him a little bit more or applying more pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, and he doesn't have to describe any of it. So I thought that was cleverly written. This and is also for another look at the fact. I think her Bene Gesserit abilities are, like, also can manifest physically yeah, in certain ways, which we see more of later. And that's something to think about with Paul, too. Like, what he's been able to... Yeah. To sort of get from her. And I mentioned in the first episode how she had more experience uh, with some of these powers and just like she was more worldly. She'd been around for longer. And you start to see that in this in this section as well. Like Paul is as much as he acts like he's an adult and he has everything figured out and he has this like premonitions and all that stuff. He still does act like a 15 year old or whatever. Every yeah, once in a while. 15. So young. Yeah. Um, I mean, he doesn't. He seems very mature for his age. Yes. I don't think it's safe to say that much. But yeah, at times, I think you're right. Um, and I, I do like that she is way more perceptive about the cultural stuff that she's like, we're going to have to adapt to this culture. And she's yeah. immediately realizing, like, we're going to need to do this. You're going to need to do this. I love the, like, sort of unspoken signals that they can give each other, too. Like, those mm. sort of nods and looks of, of knowing looks and things like that. Yeah. And, like, I love that intuition stuff with, with the Bene Gesserit stuff yeah. that they have. Jessica continues to be a really cool character that I that I, I just really like. But, um, yeah, the way that she interacts with Stilgar is really cool because there is also almost an attraction there, it seems like. Yeah. You know, she's like, oh, he, he clearly would... Consider taking me on as a wife after this whole yeah, throwdown, and he's like impressed with her because at first he was ready to like discard her, like yeah. she's she's not important. Mm-hmm. Um, but then after she proves that she could like best him and like get, get the jump on him, he's like, oh, she could get the jump on any of us then because I'm like one of the best fighters we have. Um, that's sort of how they he explains that like that's how the Fremen society goes, like sort of the yeah. strongest can tend to lead. Yeah, kind of warlike. Um, you see this a lot in fantasy, right? Like there's this society that in many ways is advanced but in other ways is very tribal and very archaic there's like these blood duels that paul gets involved in and uh, i guess let's get to that there's this character um james james who is kind of like giving him the stink eye a lot and seems to be questioning his you know whether or not they should be listening to him and letting him live and then finally the, he has to have this blood duel with the guy the guy challenges him and she's told that she has to be quiet because they realize that she has powers it's like she has witching powers right so she has to be quiet the whole time so she can't do anything 
and they fight. And uh, I don't know about you, but this is one of my one of my favorite moments from this entire ch uh, chunk of book. I love a good fight in a in a book. Like I'm, a, you know, I'm a sucker for that. I'm excited to see how this looks in the movie. But um, we find out that Paul's training has really paid off because he's extremely talented and quick, and he's got these like abilities to see the future. And I think that's helping him in this fight. Um, and then the only thing that is holding him back is that he's fighting as if the guy has a shield because he's always learned to fight that, shielded yeah. opponents where you have to attack more slowly. Mm -hmm. And that gives the guy these openings to get away from certain strikes. Um, that's all really cleverly written. Like, I, I, it's almost like he's he's fighting with a handicap and yet he's still kicking this guy's ass. And yeah. who's this amazing Fremen fighter? Right. But I do love that, like, with all of the skill and all of, like, the diplomatic ability he has and the way he can speak to people and the it, it ultimately comes down to this, like, primal fight. Yeah. Um, because, like, it is kind of to, to show both sides of the coin. He's been trained by Duncan and, and all the other uh, aides to Leto. And then now we get to the point where he has to, like, put them all into action. And, you know, we're seeing him develop these psychic abilities for the most part. Mm -hmm. And then we're also seeing him how he has developed as a fighter. And he's he's in a, you know, and, and then in the society where fighting clearly will make you a leader, potentially, he's he's also good at that. So, yeah, and it all works. Right. And then he, so he wins this fight. He wins the admiration of the Fremen. Um, I, there is a, a line that uh, Jessica gives that I really liked where she, she a couple times says beginnings are times of great peril. Yeah. Um, and I thought that was a really clever line. Um, it's one of the, it's like there's a lot of stuff that you could use in your day to day life in this book. Yeah. You know, it's well, like this... I'll be thinking about that, like beginnings are times of great peril, like because nobody knows yet what things are going to be like. You yeah. know, when you're first meeting somebody, there's a lot of potential for things to go wrong there. Yeah. And that's what she's thinking. Like we're first meeting these Fremen. Someone could get killed before we have a chance to explain the situation. I think that also could be said for that line could be said beginnings or times of, of such great peril could be said for a lot of the characters that we're seeing in this section, too, because we're seeing new beginnings for Jessica, which we'll get to new beginnings for the Baron's nephew that you talked about earlier, uh, Fade Rotha. Fade Rotha. Yeah. yeah. New beginning for Paul with some of the things that he goes through. Yeah, and, right. then, and then the girl that we meet thematically uh, uh chani yeah it works yeah yeah uh chaney i think is how they say well, that's how they say in the audiobook chaney okay, Chaney. yeah um which by the way she's part of this fremen group and yeah. we meet her and at first she's just described as elfin so well, that was interesting like, yeah no you, just, you okay. can just reference elves uh, all right <laughs> um she's elfin this elfin figure um it is kind of fitting though um you know from uh the casting that we've seen <laughs> yeah i mean we and then we come to find out you know a little later that she is the daughter of Leet Kynes. Yeah, which, yeah, that's a pretty cool reveal. And also that Leet Kynes is not just the planet ecologist, but, like, the leader of he's the like entire... He's like a god yeah. something, god he's emperor, like a, god... He's a god leader of the of the entire Fremen. Yeah. And I guess he was kind of in secret. Yeah. Um, Which is cool, right? Like, I don't know, I really like that. And then, and then yeah, she's his daughter. And she's she just lost her father, and it seems like Well, we her should talk and, about that as well. The Kynes scene was fascinating yeah. to me so he's left to die in the desert right. basically they kind of made it look like an accident the uh harkonnens harkonnens yeah they they make it look like he crashed one of the uh, ornithopters and he's like travel he has no still suit mm -hmm. he's traveling through the desert through the dunes on his own hoping the fremen are gonna find him right which like you i, I was kind of like thinking they were going to me right too. yeah and and um 
he's being he's sort of being like berated by his, the, the ghost of his father yeah who was also the same kind of like planetologist I, I, I was so confused i thought it was gonna like be revealed that like it was actually a some sort of bot or something like i was i was no, like, like an obi-wan moment he's like yeah use the force but it's like a it's just <laughs> a ghost i guess or maybe up. or maybe i don't know there's some implication that maybe people are like reborn yeah in the in the creatures could be yeah. i don't know I don't, I definitely I some mysticism like stuff going on yeah so, it seems but, like there but is he's also could just be hallucinating losing losing um liquid right losing yeah. hydration in the in the desert and um then the you know the the ghost of his father tells him like you know you should have he sort of says like you should have moved faster we still needed to to terraform the planet we need to get it turned over and then he starts telling him about this like build up underneath him he's right which is the reason that it seems like it's more than just a hallucination yeah because that ends up being true exactly yeah and uh scary stuff too and of course this will come back this sort of build up is gonna have to come back it'll it'll be used in some way or it will happen again at some point in the novel or maybe further novels like uh sequels but yeah the build up underneath him while he's hallucinating it's it's there's a lot of like this trippy stuff that goes on too when paul is like taking spice when jessica is drinking the the water of life or whatever that is mm, later that we'll yeah. get to uh so this is another like psychedelic moment but it's it, it's sort of he's like seeing visions um overall this scene is like really sad because yeah we didn't I, I didn't know he was gonna die at the end of the scene yeah we just found out who he really is yeah and then and he's dies. extremely important yeah. like he he's and he, and also the connection that he has with paul already yeah but we're creating power vacuums Right. Which is so essential in a story like this. New beginnings. Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. You have these this younger generation stepping into these larger ro- like roles. And I feel like that's such a, a quintessential fantasy sci-fi thing to happen. Changing. So the whenever you, whenever you're reading, you know, listener, whenever you're reading a sci-fi book or a fantasy novel, and there's some like honorable, wise leader of the family. Yeah. Don't fall in love with that character. <laughs> or do and know that know that it's gonna be heartbreaking. Things are probably not gonna go well for them because that you have to like so often you have to kill the 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 leader of the family so that the younger ones can take you know, take on greater roles. Um it's just an easy way to go in these books and um, and, and, it well, makes, and, it, and it works. Yeah, it's powerful. Yeah, it, and it, yeah, especially in a in a book filled with combat and violence and warfare, and especially this kind of like family dynamics, it, it just makes sense. You're gonna have assassinations and stuff, right? Like that's yeah essential. Um, so one other section that we talked about here in the in the um, in the summary is the the consuming of the water of life, and I think it actually happens a little later in the plot, but we'll talk about it now because it was in the chunk I read. The water of life. She ends up drinking to become a, a uh, reverend mother, which is like a leader in their society, but also a leader in the Bene Gesserit in the yeah. same way. And it's like slightly different, but also kind of the same. Well, we met one early on, right? Yeah. That was the, that was a person who tested Paul. Right. But they're different because this is the Fremen's reverend mothers. Right. Um, and so she meets them and become, ends up becoming one of them. And she, she does like a ceremony where she drinks this poison and has to use her power to make it not poison. Yeah. Um, and that's like the test, I guess, right? Because if you can't do that, then you're not yeah. worthy. To And to manifest powers like this is something that I didn't know that Benny Gesserit or anyone would be capable of. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, she does. She's basically a, a wizard. <laughs> a wizard. Or a... A witch. <laughs> a witch. A witch. <laughs> or a, you know, messiah figure, like changing yeah. water to wine type thing right here. You know, changing oh, a liquid over. Oh, I didn't catch that. Yeah, I like that. 
uh, she changes poison into not poison <laughs> water. Well, and then she she drinks it, and then there's she becomes this like she feels herself changing. There's yeah, a full on change. She that she, has, she trips balls when she yeah. drinks it. <laughs> and again, she's tripping balls while she's pregnant. Yeah. And also, then the the other older Reverend Mother like fucking is absorbed <laughs> into her. She gets all of her knowledge and all the knowledge of all Reverend Mothers. Right. And so the like, Reverend Mother, the older Reverend Mother, is like, "Oh, you're pregnant. You should have oh, told man. us that." And so like this this child just being like just pelted with the the, the things well you know it, that reminds me of what's that yeah are you familiar with the highlander franchise yeah seen of course. yeah, yeah. when, you, when you chop the head off of the highlander yeah you like absorb their powers but also i think their memories and shit right yeah i think so and then like any oh and then also of anyone they've killed previously and mm-hmm. so the idea is that over time there will be one highlander who there has all of the exactly there can only be one um and i was just thinking how like i wish that was something like you read you read a novel of an author, and then you, and then you absorb them. all of their yeah. You consume them. No, you absorb all of their writing skill. That would be awesome, right? Yeah. And, then, and then and then you kind of do, though, and then know? all of the writing skill that they've absorbed in their life. Maybe you do. Maybe yeah. there can be only well, one ultimate writer one day. <laughs> I think that's the that's the standing on the shoulders of giants thing, yeah. right? Like we're all learning from the people before and yeah. sort of finding our own way. And truthfully, that makes it sound way more cutthroat than than writing yeah. really is. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it's just funny to think that there is something to be said for like you can learn from the lessons that other people have learned. Like yeah. that's like kind of how society works. Definitely. And we're seeing that in magic form here as she's able to immediately get all this knowledge just loaded into her brain like the Matrix. It felt um, a lot like when Paul what... first got the spices too and he was go- he was getting these like crazy future future yeah. trips that he was going on. And he, it's also interesting because like she talks about trying to hold on to her like oneness because mm. like she was becoming many. Loses herself. Yeah. In it, yeah. And so like you could see a character coming out of this being like these characters that we see often that almost remo- um, Dr. Manhattan type character that has to like knows everything is everything yeah. and almost removes themselves from society in ways because they can't relate to the humanity of it all anymore. Yeah. Maybe her whole body will turn blue, not yeah. just her eyes. Yeah. We didn't talk about the blue eyes last time. No. Yeah. No whites. Yeah. Is that, is that how we're going to get it in the movie? I can't remember from the, from the trailer if they had the full blue eyes or not. I, I assume so. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's, that's such a like essential look for this yeah. uh, series. Right. Very cool stuff. So Paul and Jessica learned that the Fremen are more numerous and powerful than commonly thought. The Fremen escape the Emperor's eye by paying the guild to largely ignore their movements on Arrakis. They also work to return Arrakis to its ecology with lakes and oceans, a collective goal that drives their individual and societal obsession with reclaiming and storing water from their environments and their own bodies. The Fremen come to view Paul as a messianic figure, Mahdi, who was promised long ago. Although Paul and Jessica recognized this myth as a Bene Gesserit construct planted in Fremen culture. Due to Fremen's liberal use of spice, Paul's cognitive abilities continue to develop, while he also becomes physically sharper and stronger due to the tough Fremen lifestyle. Paul is concerned by the visions he has of becoming so powerful that a religious crusade will sweep the galaxy in his name. During his time with Stilgar's Sietch, he also falls in love with a young Fremen woman named Cheney. Real quick, you mentioned uh, how they store water, and I wanted to talk about when someone dies. This yeah. is something big. When Jameis died, they like all the water in his body. They took it away to sort of, you know, recycle that water, mm-hmm. use the water that was in his body. 
and it was it was Paul's to sort of decide what to do with. And Paul like cries over over this person yeah, who's killed. Funeral scene is yeah. really touching, actually. Yeah. And that was a scene where I think a lot of Fremen came to respect Paul because yeah. you know, again, seeing the humanity, he he's crying, and they see it as like giving up your moisture. They can't even imagine crying because they do this. They they do like a grieving thing where they put like a small piece of cloth around their arms to like let people know that they're grieving rather than like crying to show yeah, that. Yeah, because you got to conserve your conserve, moisture. Yeah. But they see him as. Uh, He's giving moisture to the dead. And that's this, like, he's honoring the dead. And it's this yeah. guy who he didn't really even know. And so I think, yeah, he earns a lot of respect when he does that. And then he sort of has to weirdly take on, like, he has to decide whether to make his, the Jameis's uh, partner uh, yeah. his servant or wife. And then he also has to take care of Jameis's children and sort of, he, you know, doesn't make her his wife. She's like a servant. She's like a servant. Yeah, yeah. And then, and then, it seems seemingly he's going to take care of the children whenever need be. Yeah, that. Yeah, that's the implication. Um. Yeah. So he he, but he takes on this role, and he he, he it's the first person he's killed. We learn like he's never yeah. killed anybody before. Um. And it, it, during all of this, he's starting to like have some interactions with Cheney, but we don't get a lot of direct him and Cheney getting to know each other, it seems like it happens kind of off page a lot. A little, Yeah, I do agree with it's that. It's like they pair off and go off and then Jessica's doing something else and Jessica then she sees, sees them, them talking to each other and she's worried about it. it she really, right she away. Keeps, well, she, she, there was a status thing kind of also. Like the first the first reaction was why is he singing a love song to someone so lowly? As yeah. Her, something like that, which I was like, ooh, Jessica. And then she's know? like, oh, I was a concubine, but I was more important than a concubine. And yeah, it was kind of odd. She almost seems jealous in a way. Of like she's stealing worried, Paul's yeah. affections, but also like yeah, worried that he's going to get beguiled, <laughs> yeah, by by her. Um, it, it, yeah, I don't know. It seems like those two aren't are going to maybe butt heads in the future. Is my guess. Also, probably all three of them. Yeah, Paul's like going to obviously fall in love. And well, push and he's back. he's starting to have some doubts about Jessica because right. in his visions, it seems like she's one of the key figures in starting this jihad that he doesn't want to have happen. Which is surprising because she has been this character who doesn't like she's not like hard line with the Bene Gesserit's like teachings necessarily. She's done her own thing at different times, so. I don't know. It'll be interesting to see her not want Paul to do the same, to do whatever he wants to do in, in certain ways. Yeah. Well, I, I can see her wanting vengeance um, over Leto. True. I can see her thinking that the Harkonnens need to be destroyed and seeing the power that Paul is able to harness through the Fremen. She probably starts to think like we have to use this. So I can see her like maneuvering in a way where she yeah. thinks it makes sense to start this war. Yeah. Um, not really caring about how many people are going to die because of it. Speaking and, of, I mean, I mean, that's a big. I mean, in real life, right? Like, that's often the question of like war in general, right? Like, if you have a war that seems justified, yet is going to result in all this death, you have to weigh that against how much death and suffering is going to happen if you don't do the war, right? And the long term effects of like creating like generational trauma. Yeah, well, tra trauma, conflicts, yeah. enemies. Yeah. Um, and that's something that, like, God, like, so much has been thought and written about that. And I don't know that I have a strong sense of what I even believe when it comes to that stuff. Because it seems like, of course, there are times where you have to go to war, right? Like, if, you, have to fight. you know, World War Two, yeah. like, concentration camps, like, certain things, it's like, you, that has to be stopped. Right. 
but then it's like you can create situations where it ends up being worse over time. I'm not saying in that situation, but like look at the Middle East and like, well, because we're, what we're talking about here, yeah. right? With Dune, I think it's, I think he's kind of drawing on some of this stuff. Right. Now this was before a lot of this, right? So it's almost prophetic of what mm-hmm. happened. Um, so it's really fascinating to think you about did, it that way. You did talk about vying for like, or maneuvering at least. And um, I wanted to talk about like the Fremen actually sort of using the guild who are fascinating to me, the guild that we've, we've heard yeah. a little bit about the guild. Yeah, I feel like we don't know a lot about them. But the maneuvering to sort of escape the emperor's eye. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, it, we get some more of like the Baron's interaction with people who are associated with the emperor going forward, but obviously clearly very powerful. And, but there's also like this thing where it seems like everyone wants to be the emperor, you know, like Paul has like ideas that eventually he's going to be this galactic leader and like lead crusades to fight against everybody and people will rally behind him and stuff. But then even like the Baron sees himself, um, the Baron's nephew sees himself as like potentially the emperor. So everybody, that's going to be a big thing. I think also is like the power vacuum or whatever, whatever happens on Arrakis also affects everything in Mm -hmm. the galaxy. Seemingly. It's almost like, uh, you know, this sort of hierarchical government where one person has absolute authority yeah. isn't a good one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah hey. So much sci- sci-fi and fantasy has been uh, written about how, you know, maybe this isn't great. Yeah, <laughs> maybe this isn't a good way of doing government. <laughs> um, what was your impression of Cheney now that we've met this love interest? He's had these dreams about her. He finally meets her and he's like, ooh, um, what, what do you think of her so far? So this obviously, it's hard to look at this and not think of like a Pocahontas situation or something like that, where it's like this white guy coming into this culture and being like accepted and finding a yeah. love interest. And like, it's a little like, ooh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, her as a character, I enjoy though. And, you know, I, I like do that. You? I do. Yeah. yeah. I, I like that. I, I don't feel like I know her. Really? Even near like, the what end? Like, what is she? She's done so little. Yeah. Yeah, she does a little bit at the end. You're right. Yeah. Nearing the end of this section, I, I like, like, the sort of their interactions. And, you know, they're both in mourning over their fathers and yeah. stuff. They have that common thing, which is, like, obviously pretty yeah. heightened state of emotions. But, like, uh, she's, I mean, she seems to just be cool and, like, understand, like, how to <laughs> She's help. just cool, man. She's cool. But she's, like, you know what I mean? She's, she's supportive. <laughs> cool and supportive. Hot. Yeah. I mean, I guess yeah. that's, that's, you know, again, problematic. Probably. <laughs> she's supposed to be this, like, uh, you know, desirable character for, for a main character. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, we just met her. And she right. hasn't done a whole lot yet. And maybe, you know, I'm going to give the benefit of the doubt. Maybe she does a ton in the third part here. She, she really just seems capable, obviously. She seems capable within the society. She seems well important. respected. She's the, she's the daughter of this important figure as well smoking hot (laughs) i'm I'm sure that that's the implication but she is 15 so we didn't yeah (laughs) oh yeah i forgot (laughs) yeah uh but i think we're yeah we'll we'll see i mean paul is into it though like they go off to like well the spot it seems like at the end they're like tripping balls yeah they're on they're high on spice high on life yeah high on water of life right yeah so it goes all right so uh, i got a last little bit here uh although this is the shortest chunk here and it talks about uh, the Baron Harkonnen. So meanwhile, Baron Harkonnen persists with his political scheming. He puts his nephew, Robin, in charge of Arrakis, but plans to turn Arrakis's inhabitants against Robin. This is so the populace will welcome Fade Raltha Harkonnen, the Baron's favored nephew, as their leader. The Baron has also convinced Hawat, Duke Leto's Mentat, to work for House Harkonnen by convincing Hawat that it was Lady Jessica who betrayed the Duke. So that's interesting, right? Like the this Hawat character who we've met 
is brought into Harkonnen's service because Harkonnen tells him, like, oh, it was Lady Jessica all along, who he suspected. And yeah. he convinces him that 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 she was the traitor. I was surprised that he that he even would go with the Harkonnens. I was like, yeah. come on, really? Yeah, I think it's I, definitely do, a plant, right? It like, seems like I don't know. Maybe he just agreed to do it, right? Like, do you, I, I, he's so smart? He, he has to see that this isn't true, right? There's something going on here. He's he's a he's he's behind enemy lines, in my opinion. Yeah, like, I so I, I suspect that maybe he's not as bought in to this as. Uh, yeah. Well, and then he has this whole situation where he like kind of convinces Fade Rotha to come and do this combat, right? And then it seems like he may have fucked him over a little bit. It's, it's like, weird. It's like the the guy's usually drugged, but now he's not drugged, and so it's more dangerous than it was supposed to be. Yet mm-hmm. there's also this like key word he can say to like kill the guy, right? And there's like poison blade. He has like poison blades and stuff. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's a it's an interesting series of events. I I had there were times in this book where I'm a little bit like. What is happening? Like, it, it, it's kind of a lot. It's a lot. I mean, and again, well, small and, period and of time that we ran And particularly in. this part, because there's so many new characters. Yeah, definitely. You're meeting all these new people. The Count. The Count. Yeah. You're me- yeah, and they're having these conversations. And his style. Okay, so I, I shouted this out last time as something that I thought he did well. But I stylistically don't like it. And it's the all the head hopping. Like, it works. In, and, like, I, I, I get acclimated to it, mm-hmm. to where I'm okay with it. But... It kind of takes some of the dramatic tension out. It definitely does. Yeah. When you keep popping into people's heads and understanding what they're all thinking in a given scene. Immediately. Like yeah. you're, there's like not as much mystery. Whereas if you're tied in one person's POV and they're thinking about, I wonder what this person's planning or this person's planning, you immediately find out. Right. In the way he right because you pop over to their head and yep. he explains what they're thinking. It's it's, it's a very different way of doing it than we see these days. It's more clinical. It feels like it feels like you can really understand. You're, we're God in this story. Like we understand yeah. everything. We know everybody's thoughts, yeah. and it and it leads to interesting interactions because like we get so one of the main things I wanted to talk about with Fade Roth is that he's so clearly a, the Harkonnen parallel to Paul. He's yeah, coming right. up and he does this duel, does just a like duel. Paul did a duel. Yeah, he's like he's like. Uh, you think they're gonna duel each other? Maybe. I, I think they're, they're gonna come into their own. How right? could they not? Right? Yeah, they're yeah. both younger, taking over their their like you know family members' role, and then um, they're both very capable. And then uh, the Fenrings, like the the Count and his yeah. and Lady Fenring, uh, they mention even like what Fade Rotha could have been if he was. They were sort of saying, "Oh, it's unfortunate that he's being raised by these Harkonnens." Yeah, and, like, they're making him it, shitty. What would it have been like if he was raised by uh, the Atreides? And yeah. like you know, so like to to draw those parallels, like there's something that's gonna happen. So these, there. I I couldn't quite like. So who are these counts? And like who are they? Uh, who's their allegiance to the Emperor? I assume so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, I, and I wasn't quite clear. And there was some Benny Gesserit stuff going on though yeah. too. They were talking about. It seemed like the count. So it seemed like the count was over top of the Baron, in my opinion, oh, or, yeah. or at least like somewhere like in in that Just another realm house, of power maybe? potentially. But because they were talking about how like it would be easier to control different people if they became the next Baron. Yeah. So that's sort of like, Harkonnen, man. Like, Harkonnen doesn't seem long for this world either, right? Oh no, yeah. Like how could he be? He, everybody yeah. fucking hates him. He's the target after, and yeah. and I do like you know it's interesting to think that he's like positioning one of his family members to be like a piece of shit and everybody yeah. hate him so that this other guy fade rotha like comes yeah. in as the hero although i could also see him like fucking living out longer than all these people who think they're gonna bring him down yeah just retiring you know I mean? and he's just disappearing fuck- no he's just this fucking ornery bastard who just outwits everybody because they all underestimate him or something and they're yeah. like this guy's a fucking 
fat, gross slob, because they all think when they look at him, they, like, he needs to die, and then he just mentioned, gets the best of all of them. It's mentioned a lot in this yeah. section as well. I was like, okay, yeah, I can see <laughs> what you're talking about. I don't know. I mean, I don't like him in the sense that he's not like a likable character, yeah. but I don't know. Maybe was, maybe he'll, I don't know. He's either going to die immediately or he's going to outlive them all. I, I guess we'll see. Yeah. Um, there's another uh, part of Herbert's writing that I want to talk about a little bit and get your take on it. Sure. Um, so he writes direct thoughts in italics. I right. noticed this in the book. Yeah, yeah. Occasional, he'll have someone talk in like a direct moment where they think. I, I don't know how to explain it other than it's a direct thought. I right. guess like Into kind of monologue. delivered in the first person. I guess. Yeah. Um, and it's and it's he's head hopped into them, and then he gives this direct thought, and it's in italics. This is a kind of an interesting technique that I'm not a big fan of. Mm-hmm. Um, I find it to be, I find narration to already be very internal. So whenever I see an internal thought, I'm like, why do we need to italicize it? We can just write it and like we already get that we're in somebody's head. But maybe he's doing it because of the whole head hopping thing. Yeah, maybe. But even then, it's it's like sometimes it seems arbitrary to me when he decides to italicize and when he decides to just narrate something that is clearly in the thought of someone. Yeah. So it's interesting. I find it weird as a writer. Like I don't personally do it very much i don't i tried it for a while but i think i stopped doing it because I, I found it to be like too arbitrary mm-hmm. um so i, I kind of don't like it but i'm just curious like what your take was as you read those parts herbert had to have had like an extreme desire to, to for his readers to know everything that's going on uh it I, I maybe it's a way to make it more clear like whose whose thoughts they are or something like that but then again like you said it's in the first person so they're not necessarily say, thinking you have to already be clear of who you are when you get them right, right. like you have to know whose head you're in yeah. otherwise you won't know what's happening yeah i don't know maybe it's to when you're internal like that you can do more of that trippy stuff where like they're losing their own like lucidity almost like they're starting to like like sort of fade into some sort of weird trip or something like that. Maybe you can play with that a little more hmm. in that first person sort of thing. But I don't know. If that's... One th- one thing I can see is that he's doing this head hopping. And so he might worry that the narration is too distant. And yeah. this might be a way to get really in the head. Like we're, if we zoom all the way in and give direct thoughts in italics. Super intimate. Maybe it'll feel intimate, right? Yeah. Like maybe it'll make you feel like you really know the character. I can see that, yeah. Um, so I guess that in his defense, that's probably why he's doing it. Um, it's just not personally a style I like, but it might be because he's also doing another style I don't like in the head hopping, whereas right. like, I personally don't like doing that either. So yeah. uh, maybe that's, yeah, these are all of a kind with one another. I think that makes sense. So just a few other things here before we wrap. Um, another little writing thing I noticed he does that's like a throwback to another time. Presently, he said, or he did this thing. Oh, yeah. Did you notice that? Extra that ad- words. It's just a weird ad. It's literally the word presently. Yeah. And I've never understood why it's, oh, it sounds- writers from a certain era felt like they needed to say presently as if we wouldn't realize that it was happening if you said he walked over and picked this thing up from the table. You'd be like, when did he do that? I, it's got to no, be just presently. Like, I must say it at the beginning of the sentence. Is it's got to just be uh, a holdover, right? Probably. You know, the- it's funny. I read that he is a, was a big fan of Edgar Rice Burroughs. Yeah. And how could he not be? They're so right, similar. Yeah. Right, right, right. And we covered him and that was something he did a ton. Yeah. I think I even mentioned it in that episode on Princess of Mars that he was constantly saying presently it's you know? it's got to be a holdover like he that's what he read growing up probably and he just loved that that's so what an author does yeah. <laughs> they say presently yeah. yeah it's probably what it is hold on to it um i don't like it don't do yeah. it <laughs> <laughs> unnecessary word 
Um, I, I don't have like a huge hatred for adverbs that a lot of people do have, it okay. seems like. But that one at the start of a sentence... It's so unnecessary. It's that cool. one, get rid of. A little weird. For um, but, you know, it doesn't bother me too much because this is older writing, so right. I get it. But um, it's just some, this kind of shit stands out to me. A um, couple other things. So uh, there's a, a line where during the fight, um, Herbert says, and this is something that, that Paul has learned, and is the terrified man fights himself. Um, and I liked that, right? He goes center. on to talk about how, yeah, exactly. No, it plays into that. About how, like, when you're terrified, like, you let fear build and become terror. Mm-hmm. And then when it becomes terror, you'll make mistakes. Mm-hmm. And then that will give you an opening. Right. In this fight. Um, but I just like that, like, the idea of, like, staying, remaining calm. Like, mm-hmm. so much of it is, like, remain calm, let other people be afraid, let other people be terrified. Right. They'll get sloppy, they'll make mistakes. Um, handling fear is something that we're seeing a lot of talked about in this book. Um, it seems to be something that Paul is very good at doing, or yep. at least developing to be very good it's at doing. It's almost a Jessica's mentat, really good at it. mentat yeah. thing, kind of, too. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Um, and then the last thing I just wanted to talk about was when Jessica gets buried, yes. um, we don't get, like, a direct experience of that. Like, we don't get her experience of being buried. Right. We get Paul looking for her more. Right. But it still made me think about just how fucking terrifying it would be. So to terrifying. To be swallowed by how, sand. How often, growing up, did you think about falling into quicksand? Quicksand, man. I mean, I know it's been said a lot on the internet, but yeah. like, you thought quicksand was going to be a lot more of a thing you had to worry about when you were an adult than it, it ended like, up being, right? It felt like we were all just trudging through the Amazon, and we were going to have to like <laughs> carry a rope on our on our person yeah. just to throw it. So well, we you got like Princess up. Bride has quicksand, right? Yeah. Like, you dives into it. We yeah. had um, Never Ending Story. With the with the horse swamp <laughs> in yeah. the swamp of sorrows or whatever yeah. it was getting sucked. It's not quicksand, but still swamp of sadness. The idea of yeah, sadness. Yeah, you're right. The idea of just getting swallowed by sand and it just like going in your mouth and choking you out, just and drowning in something. drowning in yeah, sand. sand. It's like uh, drowning in general, fucking terrifying. Is, like terrifying, but like drowning in sand almost seems worse. I don't know if it is, but it almost seems worse. I mean, it's like the it's because you can't move, you become immobile. Yeah, exactly. So I, that's what it is. It triggers my claustrophobia because yeah. I do have some claustrophobia, and the idea of like not only are you drowning right. in sand, you also can't move, and right. the idea of not being able to move is absolutely horrifying to me. Like, <laughs> I hate that shit. So totally, uh, that part was uh, evocative. Even though we didn't get, like, he didn't lean into that part of it, right. but man, like uh, that gets me a little bit. That scene, uh, that, I keep thinking about that scene a lot too because it, 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 Paul's like almost failing in that scene. It's yeah. sort of his fault that they end up. Well, in they that lose situation. a bunch of their gear, right? And he's like, "Oh fuck, we're gonna die now." He almost get they, he, but then he's able to get. He's it able to get it back with this yeah. foam, this right. like foam stuff, where yeah. they're able to like build a like a way to dig into the sand right. or something and retrieve it yeah interesting yeah. stuff like the tech in this book continues to be like plausible tech it's like I, it's, I don't think it's like most of it's not real it's just like plausibly described it's like surprisingly unique too like it's yeah. not necessarily the same stuff that we've seen before yeah no it seems like very custom to this situation yeah um i saw in one of the interviews that i was watching this guy was like asking him like were you like one of those brilliant science kids growing up? And he's like, no, no, no. I was more of a, you know, English. I know I, he was like, I was a farmer. I was like, oh, out, okay. you know, working the fields and stuff and talking about how he like going out in the woods and all that stuff. But he did say that like his key thing is that he's curious. Mm-hmm. And um, he only did, was in college for a year. Yet he was talking about how he like they have him go give talks and stuff at these universities. And they're like, how are you doing this? when you don't have like multiple PhDs. You know, you only had a year of college. And he's like, I've just always been curious. I've always read and like been willing to go talk to people 
and like knock on doors is literally what he said in this interview. Yeah. And I ask people. And so it seems awesome. like he he's just really good at like seeking out the knowledge he wants and, and is interested in and then putting that into his book. So if you're an aspiring writer out there like I am, you know, that's a good lesson for all of us. Like pay attention to shit and like things you learn because you can put that in your books. And, and if you're writing science fiction or anything, really, like it gives it uh, it gives it like a lasting appeal. It gives it an educational quality, but then it also just I don't know. It's clever. Like if you can take, he's taking ideas and modifying them and, and just playing with it a little bit. Yeah. He gave himself enough, enough room by making the science soft enough mm-hmm. that he can kind of make stuff up. And that's definitely something I'm doing a little bit in my own novel. So yeah. I, I like the idea of that. Like it's a, it seems kind of possible, but also it's kind of soft and squishy. Right. And that's kind of how I, I do a lot of stuff. <laughs> I love, uh, so what you said about like having so much curiosity kind of triggered something in my mind, a little personal, but I'll, I'll tell it. I love sort of his, ideology with that i think that i would i strive for that and um i can remember like growing up just like everyone always being like you're so curious you're such a curious kid and all this stuff my parents had this ongoing thing every every night before bed i would get to ask them two or three questions just any question in the world and i would continually ask like how things worked how this happened how you know how does a toilet work? How does a like an airplane stay in the air? Like all this stuff. And it's cool to think that like just carrying that into adulthood, like you should be like unabashedly seeking out this kind of stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. If you're interested, if you're even slightly interested in understanding how something works, like go figure out how it works. It's awesome. Yeah. You know? I love that idea. That's really cool that your parents did that. Uh, have, have, yeah. Have your kid ask questions each night. Yeah. Keep them curious. I, I agree. I think curiosity is like, one of the best traits a person can have. And it's something that so many adults seem to lose as they get older. And it's sad. Yeah. Like stay curious. Like keep, like I want to continue to learn things until the day I die. Literally. Because like I I, I find so much reward in doing that and just learning and understanding more about my world and my universe and how things work. And that, that learning things also leads to more questions, right? It always mm-hmm. does. Like, you learn how something works, but then you go, like, well, what if this? And, like, if you if this is how this thing works, then why doesn't this work? And um, that's just the, the way knowledge is. And, I, yeah, I love that, and I love that that made it into this book. Um, and speaking of curiosity, I'm curious to see where this goes. Oh, also, I made a prediction last time. Not really. I, I mentioned that I had seen, I, I remembered from the right. movie, a scene of Paul maybe writing on a, on a worm. I still think, and I feel like that's happening now even more because confirmed the Fremen ride worms. worms, Yeah, so I'm like, oh, okay, so that's probably fucking happening. Yeah, with hooks or something. It sounds like. Yeah. Do you remember there was also like a moment where there was a vision of a worm drowning in water? I don't don't know what the fuck was happening with that. that. Anyway, metaphor. (laughs) Metaphor. I mean, like uh, the idea of I just love so much. I'm going to mention it again. I mentioned it last week, but the. The two planets that, that are talked about, like Paul's native planet yeah. and then this Paladin planet, they're so yeah. different. They're so, you know, it's an yeah. ocean planet and it's a dune, dune couldn't desert Couldn't be any more planet. different. Could, yeah. Couldn't be any more. And just the way that, that play, they play off each other is so cool. And just like the, I don't know, something about water and being adaptable in like, and then coming to a planet like this and still moisture yeah. is the, you well, know. Well, it's also like abundance and scarcity, right? right. Like he's from a place of abundance of the thing that is scarce on this planet. Right. And it yeah. almost becomes like a holy relic, water, mm-hmm. like, like liquid water. I don't know. But yeah. it's all artificial. Yeah. I don't know. It all plays into the themes that we've been touching on here. And we're, I'm sure are going to be explored more in this as we finish out the book. And I, I'm sure through the rest of the series, if you enjoyed this episode and our coverage of Dune in general, 
please let us know in the form of a rating and review if you haven't already done it. Um, if you have already done it, one thing you can do is like this video on YouTube, leave a comment, add us on social media. We're at Ink to Film on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Let us know that you're enjoying it. We like to interact with people on there, and we're, we're good about responding for the most part as quickly as we can. Um, basically, it's me. Whenever I can yeah. see it, I try, <laughs> I try to respond. Um, I'm traveling right now, but I, I'll, I'm sure I'll be bored on a plane looking at social media, so... Uh, let us know. Let us know that you're liking it. Uh, we love to hear that. And if you want to support the podcast in another way, check out our Patreon. It's patreon.com forward slash ink to film. And we have many different tiers, but for the $2 tier, just $2 a month, you can get access to our bonus content, which is normally a bonus episode every month. And we yeah. have like 40 of them. Yeah. And we will be doing the Dune uh 80s version the david lynch dune film yeah. this month yeah after we finish the book out we'll be watching that uh david lynch movie and releasing a bonus on that so if you want to be there as soon as that drops if you like that movie and you want to hear what we think of it that's where you're going to do it patreon um also we have a discord which we have opened up to non-patrons anybody can join that now you just need to get a, an invitation link and the way you're going to do that is go on our Council of Inklings, where I'm going to post it regularly for people to join. And then uh, if you don't want to get on there, you don't use Facebook or whatever, just reach out to us on any social media and I'll send you a link. Um, just let us know you're a listener. I'm just doing that to keep the people who are in the Discord are actual listeners of the podcast. That's really all I want. And thank you to Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. All right, man. I, all that's left to do is to... Uh walk without the rhythm so we don't attract the worm yes i, I, I want to go listen to that song again actually i will yeah we'll listen to it together yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah we'd play it now but we'd get fucking copyright striked sure. if we did that so go yeah. listen to it yourself uh enjoy and then uh we will be back next week to finish out the novel and then the following week with the new movie i mean we're hoping to have a very exciting guest on for that so pay attention and look forward to that and until next time keep adapting <laughs>